Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts in a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Tosh Robinson. Keith Phipps. And Genevieve Kosky. In the first half of this conversation, we talked about Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love, a film about two lonely hearts in early 60s Hong Kong who bond over the shared realization that their spouses are having an affair with each other. The look and feel of Wong's work is a strong influence on Barry Jenkins' Moonlight, especially the final third, which has a dreamy quality despite the acute pain at the center of it. Told in three parts, each with different actors playing the same central character, Moonlight focuses on Chiron, a black boy in the Miami projects, as he progresses from pre-adolescence to high school to young adulthood. As a little boy, Chiron is bullied and teased for reasons he can't quite understand, but he does find a friend and father figure in Wan, a drug dealer played by Marshala Ali and Juan's sympathetic girlfriend, Teresa, played by Janelle Monet. Throughout Chiron's childhood, he doesn't get much support from his mother, Paula, played by Naomi Harris, who's addicted to the crack that Juan peddles on the street. Chiron's insight into his own sexuality lags behind the boys who are picking on him, but as a teenager, he makes a connection with Kevin, a kid who more easily fits in with his peers. The two share an intimate moment on the beach, but social pressures tear them apart. In the final act, when Chiron and Kevin are adults living on their own, they reunite and all those old feelings start to surface again. Who is you, Chiron? Come on, son, try not to remember. Try to forget all those times. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you want to be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. You won't tell him why the other boys kick his ass all the time. What's wrong? I'm good. No. I ain't seen good. You ain't it. Remember the last time I saw you? Listen. To who, Ma? Huh? To you? Who is you, man? I ain't seen you in like a decade. It's not what I expected. What did you expect? Um, all right, big broad question to start. What, what did you all think of Barry Jenkins' Moonlight? It's gotten the best reviews of the, of the year. Are you on board with those reviews? Tasha Robinson. 
I this movie was so startling. When I saw it at TIFF, it was already kind of the hottest ticket at TIFF. And I, I felt like I knew what I was getting into. And then there's just that shot early on where you're watching the kids kind of like wrestling and horsing around and, and playing together kind of around a ball, but they're they're really more roughhousing mm-hmm. than actually playing with the ball on the field with the Mozart music playing in the background. And I just, I just think my jaw fell off. Like it, it, falling open wasn't enough. It just fell off. I was like, what am I watching? <laughs> and can I live in this movie? Can I move into this movie and just like live here for the rest of my life? It's really startling in so many ways because it keeps changing. The style keeps changing. The story keeps changing. The character keeps changing. And it's like a little anthology. And for me, I guess the big problem with the movie was I didn't connect to the third act as nearly as much as I connected to the first two. I found those first two acts so amazingly powerful and just so overwhelmingly surprising and emotional that the fact that the third act kind of feels like a Wong Kar Wai movie Mm -hmm. just (laughs) kind of put it back in the realm of something I'd, I'd seen before in my life. Yeah, I, I just watched Scott's Tasha, face why, fall why? when you said <laughs> I, know, I, was like, I was like, Tasha, why, why do we have to be at odds on a movie we both really like? So did you like the third act best? I did. Of I did course. well, the second is really great. I, it feels like the third act ties it together for mm-hmm. me. And, and it, is, it is a shift in many ways. And part of what I love about Trevante Rhodes' performance is he's playing Chiron as an adult who's gone from a, a, a wimpy kid and a wimpy teenager to very imposing muscular figures, like someone who's made a conscious decision to turn his body into something that will never allow him to be bullied again. But the moment he smiles, the moment he reconnects with with uh, Kevin, I mean, this is very much the same character. But I love the continuity. Like, this could have been a very could have been an anthology. It could have been three separate movies, but there's all these things creating a sense of continuity and, and the performances as well. And that, that's one that could have been extremely jarring. Yeah. <laughs> that could have gone horribly wrong and it did not. Genevieve? Yeah, agree across the board while stating that I liked the uh, third act more than Tasha, but it also kind of left me wanting a little more than we eventually got. I mean, I get why it cut off where it did and I, I respect that choice but it, it just kind of speaks to an issue I had with this movie is that there was so much I wanted to know more about and, and it kind of what Tasha was talking about like wanting to to live in this movie and just having such evocative glimpses of this world and then not seeing it play out is obviously a conscious choice mm-hmm. and it works but it did leave me like but wait i want to know more about juan and Teresa. like <laughs> like how, how did he die what, what what happened to juan you, you know yeah um, yeah does this is it possible that the setting and these characters just remind us enough of the wire that we want to get like everybody's stories in in intimate detail and see the environment around them and see this play out over the course of years I, 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 mean, I was grateful to not. I was yeah. grateful for the simplicity of the film, the clarity of the film. You know, the style of it is very striking. I, what, what really kind of, and this is a question I guess we can get into a little bit, is just with the relationship between Moonlight and other portraits of the projects, whether it be The Wire or, or what have you, I think there's an element of Moonlight that is a little abstracted and hyper real. I, I was kind of surprised to read A.O. Scott's review, which I think it's his Certainly, its favorite movie of the year, if not the decade. But but when, when he was talking about you know the, the sort of the harsh reality of Liberty City, uh, which is where this film takes place, and it just didn't, it never really occurred to me to think about Moonlight in, in that way as something that is exposing in any way, in any intentional or or forceful way, sort of the reality of the of living in this place. The the overall 
tone of the film is just to me so much more you know sort of romanticized well i think as it's painful as it is i think it is very much another in the mood for love connection where the early sequences are, are filmmaker because chickens grew up in this area um recreating and remembering but also kind of blurring the edges of the world of his childhood um when mike ryan reviewed this for us at uprocks he originally wrote about how the first part is set in the 80s and we got a, an email about like no it's not where we don't want it to be in any specific period we wanted to be sort of sort of ambiguous as to, to when mm. it was set. And I think that, that you, you see that in, in the film as well. Oh, I thought it, it was the 90s. Yeah, well, <laughs> well I can actually support, I can be really pedantic and point to the detail where I recognize uh, there's a Wu-Tang CD in the car that I recognize uh, would make it kind of impossible to be in the 80s anyway. But I think also, I, I think there is a little blurriness about that. And that, that kind of feeds into the tone of the film as well. Let's get into the structure of the film because this concept of it is unique. It's been compared to Boyhood, which isn't quite right, but it's not. It's not. It's not wrong either in the sense that we are. I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong-ish. It's it's wrong-ish. I mean, in that we're not. In that the point of it is not necessarily to watch Chiron's development necessarily over time, because you are taking these leaps and these periods in his life are very discreet and have their own separate but related meaning. But I think it's really successful, but I'm cur- want to hear you all break it down a little bit. I mean, I really like the conceit of dividing it by his his name and like what he mm-hmm. is is going by, whether by his choosing or not during each segment of his life and the way that the name that he rejects in the previous segment becomes the name he goes by in the ensuing segment, mm-hmm. at least in terms of the second and third segment, which it's just like a really cool reinforcing of the idea of him of him reclaiming his image to a certain extent. I mean, the whole film is about uh, figuring out your identity mm-hmm. and taking control of your identity. And the fact that he t- takes control of his own name, essentially, mm-hmm. is just such a, a significant part of the story. It also just happens to be super, super helpful for film critics. <laughs> because when you've got a character uh, coming in at, at three different ages, played by three different characters, it can be very hard to distinguish between them. And uh, Barry Jenkins uh, did us all a solid by giving him three separate names. I'm curious, and I'm, I'm looking at Tasha, our resident uh, researcher, if that uh, <laughs> name convention came from the play on which this was based. Do we know that? Um, I'm not sure about the naming itself. From what little I've read about the play, and it's a little hard to dig up information on it because it was never produced. The playwright, Terrell McCraney, wrote it for a school program and it was never staged. It was Mm. too ambitious because the structure of it, instead of this kind of three-act, three-character structure, would be a scene where Little gets up and brushes his teeth and then Sharon gets up and brushes his teeth and then Black gets up and brushes his teeth. And Mm. and they go through the day together, like each doing kind of the same things. And you see the comparisons between them. And apparently it couldn't be staged because – I mean, you basically need them all on stage at all times and having like lights flicker between them uh, to indicate like who's up at any given time. I haven't seen enough written about how the story played out, but I do kind of assume that the naming convention was there because it's it very much did use that kind of that tripartite like segmenting to mm-hmm. tell the story. Interesting. One of the things I mean, this the film is unique in a lot of ways, but one of the things that strikes me about it is him having to come to know his identity and other people knowing it before he does. What a painful thing that is for him to not really understand, especially in that first segment, why he's getting picked on all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And especially since for me, 
I mean, I wasn't clear on why he was getting picked on. It seemed like he was getting picked on, you know, because he was small. And when mm-hmm. he has the conversation with Kevin, where, you know, Kevin tells him, you've got to be harder, you've got to come across as harder. It didn't really occur to me that that was in any way about sexuality, because we're talking about a 10 year old boy. And when he goes to Juan and he asks, what's a faggot? It's so clear that this is a a word that he's heard a lot and that he doesn't have any context for whatsoever. And the fact that that Juan is able to explain it to him in terms that are simultaneously supportive and acknowledging of what he's been through, it's just such a revelation in that moment, both – how it is possible to support somebody who is confused and in pain and just how monstrous it is that this kid is being victimized for something he doesn't have any grip of. Maybe even by his own mother. Like we don't necessarily see her calling him a faggot, but we do see her talking to Juan and like mentioning the way he walks. Are mm-hmm. you going to tell him why the, you know, the boys like it's clearly something that she notices and that bothers her and, and informs her relationship with her son. And that is heartbreaking, too. And especially compared to Teresa, who is a surrogate mother figure in, in many ways. Yeah. Well, is, is there... You saw it last night. Mm-hmm. So you... you well, maybe for a second time. For a second time. That's right. But isn't she yelling at him about that? There's a scene, There's a bit where, where she's screaming at him mm-hmm. in the hallway, but you don't know what she's saying. Is it, did you, not, did you yeah. also think that she, that she was... I guess well, a nice, we, we, nice bit of sidestepping on the part of the film where you can... No, we, we do hear what she says later in uh, when we're first introduced to Black in the third segment. Uh, he has a dream of that moment. And what we previously hadn't heard, we, we hear. And it, it's... I can't remember exactly what she says. I unfortunately didn't write it down, but it's something fairly innocuous. It's like, stop looking at me. or mm. But it's that shot of her in front of the glowing pink door. It's basically her yelling some sort of rejection to him, but it's not. she's not hurling an epithet. It'd be a good point to say how great Naomi Harris is in this mm-hmm. movie, too. And that's the one element that's there in every segment is, is her performance, too, and her playing his mother at very different stages of her life. Yeah, that, could have, that could have been a, a – That's a, a stock character that she brings, yeah. into, brings to life, I think. That is a type – that is a character type we have seen uh, many times But it's before. also a character type with a progression – I mean, she has her own story, and we see it playing out in an even more alighted way than we see Chiron's story. But, you know, we do see her in the different stages of kind of losing her life and getting it back together. What do you make of Juan as well? It, it seems... Drug dealer with a heart of gold. Right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of constructs, do you feel like the film pulled that off? I think it's another case where the performance really makes it work because you can see him process. He seems like a, a, a aware enough person to to understand that what he's doing has a, is having a bad impact on a lot of people. But to, to actually see it play off and Paula Chiron's mom is to see his reaction to that is to see someone really trying to come into grips with what he's done. And, and I don't know that he necessarily, you know, well, we learn he doesn't really change his ways, or at least there's nothing to suggest that he changes his ways. He certainly meets a, a not great fate because of what he does. But it's another example of the film bringing a character to life that might not have worked otherwise. Well, the other thing about Juan is he's an actual character from the playwright's childhood. This is an extremely autobiographical play. 
right down to the fact that the playwright's version of Juan did teach him how to swim. That's all taken from life. There are a lot of things in this story that do kind of feel like they're operating on stock cliches and stock characters. And it's because these characters exist in real life. <laughs> I kind of felt the same way about the the high school bully um, that won't let go of Sharon and like, keeps pushing at him. All of these elements are taken from reality. So it's it would be hard for me to get on them for, for not being realistic enough. But I really think the performance there is what makes it work. And from the very beginning, there's that feeling of like his first response to a mute child is to try to help him, even when it, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of focus, a lot of concentration and a lot of time. He seems to just become intrigued by this kid. And that in and of itself feels very real. Just that sort of feeling of like there's not this huge emotional like warmth or, or even sense of pity like he found a lost puppy. It's more like a sense of I see that there's a person in there and I want to know who that person is. And that was what drew me so much to that first segment is just that feeling of seeing little unfold gradually as a character, you know, through Juan's kind of careful human ministrations. I think setting aside that he is based on a real person, Juan is a character works in large part because of Teresa and kind of the pairing of those two characters and the insinuation that these two empathetic, concerned people have gravitated toward each other and sort of reinforced whatever it is in them that draws them to someone like Little. I love Teresa and I love Janelle Monet's performance in this. And I really I like that couple. And um, it made Juan more of a character and less of a potentially stock cliche. All right. Water for me and a little gin for you. <laughs> Boy, please. I know wine used to give you that gin, but we ain't doing that up in here, shout it. You don't think my joke was funny? What's wrong? Nothing. You good? No. I ain't seen good. And you ain't it. And stop putting your head down in my house. You know my rule. It's all love and all pride in this house. You feel me? I can't hear you. Do you feel me? Yeah. Okay. I feel you. I mean, are we supposed to be troubled, though, in any way by his line of work and the wealth that he's earned off? I mean, I think Paula, she states what the the trouble we're supposed to have with that is. And I think it is pointed that the last interaction that we see Juan and Chiron have is when Chiron asks him, you sell drugs and my mom does drugs. And he responds affirmatively. And like, that is the last time we see those two characters on the screen together. We, we know that they remain in each other's lives. But I think it is insinuated that is like a fracture in their relationship that will never not be there. 
There's a nice bit of production design too. I'm having that them live in a house that's still being worked on. There's it's a little unfinished on the inside. The decorations aren't all there. It feels unsettled. I think that was a, a, a nice detail. I think it's also a nice detail that it's not like a ridiculously opulent house. There's no there's no performativeness to the drug dealer's crib. There's no feeling that he is bringing in all of this money and then just wasting it on frivolous things to show off his wealth in that kind of performance way that's so, so often associated with like the fronting of gangster rap like he really does seem to be drug dealing because that is a profession that he can manage that enables him to like live in the ghetto and have a lifestyle and the fact that he seems to have settled down in a nice house with a nice lady and isn't carrying around like any of the the stereotypical trappings of a drug dealer and the fact that he's drawn from life all kind of make me wonder like exactly how much of the performative aspect of being a drug dealer we normally see in media is obliterating actual reality. Yeah, I mean, and I think there's a an element too where this is his neighborhood, this is his dominion of sorts and, and uh, coming to Chiron's aid is something that is a responsible thing for him to do, which again, you know, all of these things defy in a really great way the cliches that we tend to associate with a character like that. At the same time, he is very much set up as as a bit of an angel. I mean, he doesn't have a good explanation when he's confronted with the fact that he deals drugs and that he's creating misery. He doesn't have a justification. He doesn't say, well, look at all the good I've done with my money or anything like that. All he could do is look pain. He knows, yeah. you know. Well, it's, I, mean, it, I mean, ultimately, it's not his story. So we can kind of just guess at whatever moral equation he's trying to balance because it's a Chiron's story. Um, but, but he's there in the third part. His little crown hood ornament is on Chiron's mm-hmm. yeah. uh, car. Yeah. His legacy yeah, r- remains, yeah. but it, well, it, the film is about Chiron. I think well, it was an attempt to emulate him as well. Sure. Before we move on to connecting this film to In the Mood for Love, I, I think we, we have to talk about Kevin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because because those are two characters who... Um, we need to talk about Kevin. <laughs> yeah, we need to talk about Kevin. God, why didn't I just say it that way? Um, Kevin has a keen awareness, uh, social awareness of who he is and what the rules are how he's supposed to act, that eludes poor Chiron and it manifests itself in a really heartbreaking way. So what about Kevin? Let's talk about Kevin. Kevin is the equivalent of the protagonist's spouses in, in The Mood for Love. Their behavior is supposedly so limited by societal mores, and yet their spouses can get away with what they want. Kevin is living in the same world as Sharon, and in theory, he should be subject to the same strictures and the same bullying for being gay. But he knows how to get along. He knows how to project an image that make people like him and make people want to get along with him. And he he knows how to play the game. He's just – he's a character who has everything that Sharon theoretically might want in terms of – of comfort with himself, comfort with his sexuality, and comfort with other people. And it seems like he's he could so easily be held up as another cliche, another stereotype, another uh, just sort of an imaginary figure of, well, th- this is what it would look like to, to be gay and to get along in this world. And instead, he comes across as this, instead of this strange aspirational character, he's just sort of like this sweet helper at every stage of his life. I know 
don't know that I, I necessarily agree with that characterization because I think if like if this whole movie is about identity and determining your own identity and Kevin is someone from even from a at the youngest age, like when they're ten or whatever, understands how you have to, like you said, get along, but that breaks him. Like at the end of part two, where the bully Tyrell like goads him into playing their knock him down game and Kevin you see it in his face you see him understand that this game this performance that he's been doing has just ruined a couple of lives potentially at least uh, Chiron's and we see in the final segment them having flipped a certain to a certain extent in terms of putting on a performance versus being who they are and accepting the struggle that comes with that I had forgotten that detail about the the end of Act Two, and you're you're very much right about that. And to a degree, not even to a degree, he's hiding. Kevin is hiding every bit as much as he has a greater self awareness and an an ability to hide who he is or to mingle and get you know and act straight. That all that stuff eludes Chiron, but he's also on the run from himself. And uh, you know, even the way he ends up calling Chiron back, it's so fascinating. There's such a timidness and vulnerability to that of just like making that leap to reconnecting and then when it happens like what what was his plan what's the you know he's such a sure he's a very sure figure outwardly but inwardly he's just as big a mess as Chiron I mean I think as a child he's figured out how to pass uh, and he's trying to pass that information on on to Chiron and and Chiron's not quite getting it and perhaps is better off not getting it okay we'll be right back to talk more about how Moonlight relates to In the Mood for Love Chiron. <laughs> what you, what you looking at me like that for? Oh, what, man? Come on, you just drove down here? Yeah. Like you was just, you was just on one, and you hit the highway. Yeah. Where you gonna stay tonight, man? Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about the things they have in common. As I said in the introduction to this episode, the last third of Moonlight is essentially a Wong Kar Wai movie, both enchanting and bittersweet. I want to hear everyone's thoughts on Wong's influence on Moonlight in a bit, but I kind of want to talk about, you know, why we paired these movies to begin with. For me, the strongest link between Moonlight and Wong Kar Wai is the final third, uh, which feels like it could be a Wong movie. You've got the diner, uh, the jukebox, the music. Uh, There are flashes here from Chungking Express and My Blueberry Nights, as well as in, in The Mood for Love. Yes, a listener was thinking that Happy Together might have seemed like a more natural pairing with Moonlight because it's about a gay relationship. Uh, but the contrast between the two movies is stark. You know, Happy Together is about men in a stormy, on-again, off-again, long-term relationship, whereas Moonlight is about men who are kept apart. Uh, but there's a swooning romantic spirit to Moonlight that's very Wong-like, even though Chiron's life is so consistently marked by violence and repression. Those small intimacies that do happen, as they do in In the Mood for Love, I think are all the more romantic for being so rare. I mean, it's just really what two or three like moments are 
or gestures or scenes, and that's it really between these two characters. But those, because you, you know, there's so little of it, those are the moments that really resonate. Yeah, I mean, both films are really just kind of filled with grace notes and, and very subtle details that you can read huge emotion into. I, I noticed what both films do with touch and kind of the power of subtle touch in Moonlight during that scene in the first third where Kevin and Chiron are, are wrestling and Kevin touches Chiron's face just so gently because he, he's bleeding a little bit or, or in the last third when, when Chiron touches his mom's face and there's just all these little moments of very subtle touch that remind me a lot of what we see between uh, Moen and Li Zhen in, in The Mood for Love. Yeah, there's always that feeling with a really passionate crush, you're very aware of body proximity. Mm -hmm. And it, it really is a big deal if you make physical contact. And both of these movies, I think, are really good at making you feel the weight of that when that happens and the like the physicality of it. Yeah, they're both incredibly intimate movies in many ways, uh, both in terms of the performances and stylistically. Like, I didn't bring it up in, when we were talking about our reactions to Moonlight, but the scene that really sticks with me is the learning to swim scene and the way the camera is in, in that. You are partially underwater with mm -hmm. him. It's like you're, you're trying to keep your head above water as a, as a viewer. And it's just, it's so intimate and in the moment. And it's, it's really quite extraordinary. But I think both films do a lot of that kind of thing where you switch back and forth between like very up close, intimate camera angles and very isolating camera angles. I actually talked to Barry Jenkins and Terrell McCraney uh, for The Verge about this film. And one of the things that, that most struck me was uh, Barry Jenkins talked about for how framing in Moonlight, how he deliberately used these big wide screens so he could put the characters in them and without putting them like way off to the side, one side or the other. But there was always a place for them to escape to. He wanted he wanted this to not be a claustrophobic movie. He wanted there to be a sense that if the character wanted to flee and the character should always want to flee, that there was always some place to go. And it's an interesting approach to intimacy because Wong Kar Wai does the exact opposite. He pushes in really close on all of these little details. And he gives you all of these really strange framings that really tend to push the intimacy. The one that struck me most, I think, is there's a scene where Moen comes into Li Zhang's room and it's framed from behind what seems to be clothing in a closet that blocks off the top half of the frame. And so what you're seeing is their crotches <laughs> moving into the room and like the two of them kind of doing this little dance of moving around each other. And it becomes very sexual because you're just seeing their groins in relationship to each other. <laughs> and then she sits down on the bed and suddenly she's entirely in frame, but her head is at the level of his crotch. And again, it becomes, select <laughs> it becomes very selectively sexual. And then he also sits down and suddenly they're both hunched under the weight of this big black shape that's the clothing and they're both in the same space together and it, it creates just such a, a strange little intimacy it almost feels like it, it goes from this like weirdly sexual imagery to feeling like two kids huddling under a blanket fork together yeah, this, well, suddenly this episode is rated e <laughs> or something or, or, or tvma yeah, sure. or yeah. nc-17 uh but i'm pretty sure the word crotch is not rated like, nc-17 well for me it's it's too much too much fashion. <laughs> You're uh, so, so like, adorable. so I want to kind of like dial back a little bit because that bit about that you were saying Jenkins wanted to give them a certain amount of space to exit, right? Mm -hmm. 
that that is the opposite of what happens in the kitchen yeah. <laughs> at the end of that mo- uh, movie. And I think I think the fact that they ha- that there's no exit forces a conversation to happen that may may not have happened otherwise. That they are in this moment together and they're in this very tight kitchen and it's time to identify the elephant in the room and and really talk about what they're feeling and yeah so so i you know that was something i was wanted to talk about in comparison with both films is how well the space between the characters is is managed and becomes charged with tension and that is resolved of course when they do touch and but just it's electric when it happens because you because you know that space is is like this force field or something, this incredibly difficult thing to bridge, I guess. I, I, f- I feel like I could write an entire essay about the use of doorways in both of this, mm-hmm. these movies. The conversations that happen through doorways in, in The Mood for Love are, are many, and they are all fraught to a certain extent. Um, there are not quite as many in Moonlight, but that that last scene in Kevin's apartment that you're talking about, they are framed in a doorway. Like they are literally boxed in within the frame. And there's also in the first half when Juan finds Little in the in the crack house and he busts this this window open. He like literally bursts through the frame to retrieve Chiron. It all kind of comes back to what we're saying about the idea of like intimacy and kind of forcing these characters together and the use of like doorways literalizes that in uh while also being metaphorical. <laughs> I think there's a, an interesting degree to which both of these films make you think about it. Like both of these films have so many unconventional framings and unconventional shots and moments like that coming through the window where the story becomes how the scene is framed and how the shot is framed. It's not something that you can just kind of drop back and let wash over you because you're being confronted with it. I mean, this, this sequence in in The Mood for Love where Tony Lung is, uh, has his shirt off and he's just wearing the um, like a wife beater and he's leaning up against a wall in at, at the back of this like this long space. You can't look at that and just see he's hanging out and he's bored. Like the the space that he's in is so confrontational to the viewer in terms of what it's saying about his his physicality, his his lean, his boredom, his frustration, and his being diminished by the the frame itself. It's just it's making you think about it in every moment. Yeah, you know, I mean, in addition to the camera work and the the, the framing, there's a lot of you know, sort of non-verbal associations in these films that bring these characters together, you know, beyond the connections that we make through the drama. Um, food, for food. example. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, what about and music is another one. Uh, but what about food? Let's start with food. Yeah. The act of eating is one of the very few universal human experiences. Like we we all have to eat. What both of these films do, I think very interestingly, is kind of focus on the act of eating together and what it means and what it the implications thereof of feeding someone or eating with someone and like kind of um, having a conversation over food like the first time little comes to Juan Teresa's house they feed him and like the first time Moen and Lijian like kind of see each other and recognize their situation or speak their situation to each other it's over food and then of course Kevin prepares this meal for Chiron at at the end and it's just the care the way the camera lingers on his hands preparing this meal and you know very clearly insinuating the the care and emotion that's going into preparing this meal like it's 
something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there's is. a there's an analog scene in In the Mood for Love where Moen is dishing out the noodles for her, like into her mm-hmm. bowl personally, and asking her, you know, do you want soup? And then they're interrupted in the act of him dishing out the noodles by the drunkenness of the neighbor and the mahjong party, and. They put everything on pause, they wait, and then they come back to just repeating that action of, do you want soup? I'm dishing out the noodles. It becomes, again, that, as you say, like just a form of care and a form of – I mean it's kind of about servicing somebody's needs when you can't service their needs in a more physical manner. Or verbal manner either. In in both films, there are people who can't say what they want to say or need to say, so they find other ways to express it or sublimate it. And and, I mean, Moonlight's a film where every line that people speak actually does matter, especially Chiron, who says very mm-hmm. little. So the whole thing at the very end about him being boxed in, being forced to talk, it's in some way that's very quiet, but it's also a very fitting climax for this movie about, about this kid who can't say what he needs to say. I like the fact, too, in Moonlight that the chef special is still kind of unpretentious, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that it's going to be maybe a level above what uh, everyone else is getting at that that diner but you get wine with it which i don't think anyone else at that diner is getting (laughs) it's also cuban food and juan is cuban that's true there's some uh um it looks pretty good i gotta say and Mm -hmm. i mean there's and there are sensual associations with food in in movies and in life that you know as you said kind of substitute for other emotions and other feelings that that can't be explicitly expressed it's also often a stand-in for sex and speaking of sex i mean when you talk about non verbal ways of connecting characters Genevieve kind of covered the the intimacy of the very small and the very gentle touches and that's all we get and then in the mood for love but in Moonlight we get a sex scene and that sex scene is pretty transgressive in a lot of ways I mean it's two teenagers it's two black kids it's out in a public space and for and one of them is losing their virginity and it's shot just with I, I think a remarkable sensitivity and intimacy and it's not entirely eroticized. I don't think it's played in a way that's necessarily meant to titillate the viewer, but it's certainly shot in a way that makes you aware of Chiron's emotional vulnerability and just the shock of something that is so purely pleasurable and so unexpected in his life. Given the way that In the Mood for Love like teases around the idea or the possibility of sex and the way it never happens, the fact that Moonlight is so upfront about the culmination of that and what it means to a character I think is not only daring but just really interesting as a directorial choice you know and then the other big uh, you know association in both movies is music and, and songs and and how, what they mean to the characters or what they mean to us as viewers and that's that's just always been for one car why that's that's a big part of the arsenal um if you think about well i mean happy together is that's the name of a movie but chunking express is what's the song that she's dreams in california dream california dream and right and and over and over again yeah and both that and 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 hello stranger here by barbara lewis or songs you hear more than once and i think you know he's he's kind of following Wong's example of of showing how repetition can be very powerful because that's how and part of how music drills its way into our head and into our hearts as we hear something more than once and, and we internalize it. Yeah, we connect it with something. It, the, a flood of memories comes back. I mean, that's the power of music generally. I can't even listen to the music that I got into in the early 90s anymore without getting 
<laughs> a little <laughs> choked up because I, cause it just brings back, you know, all, all these memories of, of, of youth and of talking about Jesus Jones and, uh, and <laughs> that's right. and, yeah, well, it's all that stuff. I'm the rare person to get choked up by early pavement singles. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, I, I love when movies do that. And that's something that both Moonlight and in the mood for love do so well is just, is really that just hearing that a song, a certain song or hearing, uh, a piece of scoring puts you in an emotional place that to where the rest of the film doesn't have to work so hard dramatically to get you there. There's also, I mean, the way Moonlight kind of introduces itself with Boris Gardner's Every N-Word is a Star. I've, I've seen that called out so often because the lyrics to that song are aggressive and confrontational. But they're also, I mean, it's it's a song about pride. And it introduces you to this world of kind of aggressive masculinity and like the need for self-declaration and and the declaration of identity and confidence. And and that's the world that Little doesn't really know how to fit in. But again, the sequence with the boys wrestling to Mozart, to me, that is one of the most remarkable things I've seen on film this year because it was so unexpected. And both of these movies use their orchestral score to set moods in moments that just seem very unexpected in movies where there's so much diegetic music that is set in a specific place and time. You know, you have all of these kind of soft standards and uh, Chinese songs in in The Mood for Love. You have rap and R&B in Moonlight. But then in both cases, you have just this really compelling and I, I don't want to say intrusive, because so often intrusive scores are a bad thing that order you to feel a certain way. In both of these cases, I think it, there's just a remarkable use of music to invite you to feel something without ordering you to feel it. And shout out to Nicholas Bratel who did the music to, to Moonlight. It, it is a, a very strong score and very prominently placed and, and one I don't think the film would work uh, as well without. In the Mood for Love is available on Blu-ray and DVD from the Criterion Collection, as well as the brand new fancy streaming site Filmstruck, and it can be rented digitally via various streaming services. Moonlight will be rolling out across the country for the next several months. And it's a hit. It's a bona fide hit. And we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on the films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, want to kick us off? You know, I am going to shock and appall everybody with these words, and you're just going to have to trust me <laughs> when I say that I'm not trolling you. When I say that trolls is worth seeing. Oh, okay. this, is, this is a really... Okay, so I saw... You're not going to get that much resistance from me. Okay. Well, we'll see. I'd seen the initial ads for trolls, and I, I just groaned. I was like, oh my god, it's, it's all of the worst aspects of Smurfs plus trying to start a new franchise and sell new toys. I have no interest in this whatsoever. And in my editorial capacity at The Verge, I kind of was part of a process of ordering other people to go see it, <laughs> specifically to gauge like how trippy it was compared to the trippiness of Doctor Strange. And the two writers that we sent came back and said, you need to see this movie. It's weird. It's dark. It's unusual. It makes a lot of very strange choices. It has a really interesting message. And it's a lot of fun. And I, I, I did, in fact, say, you're trolling me. Uh, you're, you're trying to get me into the theater for this, and I'm going to come out saying, why did I buy this? But I, in fact, went to see Trolls, and 
my God, that is a weird, weird movie. It definitely has a very familiar shape of a child's story. I mean, it's it's a, you know, be yourself and don't be afraid to feel your emotions and singing and dancing is fun. And it ends with a big song and dance number. But there is some stuff that goes on in that film that, again, I, I had picked up my jaw off of the floor after Moonlight and stuck it back on and it fell back off again. A loose jaw. <laughs> well, it's all of these uh, all of these strange movies. Trolls is a hallucinatory experience. It is a very unusual movie that makes a lot of very lively choices, but it's also actually emotionally moving in some ways, and the songs are really fun. Now, there is some stuff that I just cannot truck with, such as the troll made out of glitter that farts glitter on people's faces. Oh, my kids like that one a lot. Yeah. I was going to say, that sounds great. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm going to fart glitter in all y'all's faces yeah. and see how you like it. Oh yeah, I live at three boys. It's a big improvement over the farts I usually get. <laughs> how about the character that poops cupcakes, no <laughs> which are immediately scooped up and offered to somebody as a tasty treat? Well, you know. Can I just do the complete Tasha move here and say, yeah, it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> you but, can. but the glitter troll was my favorite part. <laughs> Was it really? What did you think about the song Sounds of Silence sequence? <laughs> I forget what's going on in that. That was, that was actually – I, I was trying to dispute your contention that it was an odd film. I mean I guess that would be what was it? Well, I forget what was going moment. on in that, in that I don't want to spoil it for anyone. Okay. So I'm the only one who hasn't seen Trust. No, yeah. Well, it, it's – you know, I'm going to say it's it's pretty good. I mean it's, it's all You're right. You're the only one without a small daughter or coworkers who said you have to go see this movie. And you, you you were the one we I, – I, <laughs> back when we got to assign you to see things you you had to see every animated film it was your it was the price that you had to pay to to review oh, the I, Miyazaki oh, movies some. you did you did get some you did get some but but Tasha we like to punish Keith what about you I'm going to recommend a movie in theaters now, uh, or will be by the time this comes out. It's it's a film called Edge of Seven, The Edge of Seventeen. Sorry, uh, it's the writing and directorial debut of one Kelly Freeman Craig. It stars Haley Steinfeld, who you might remember from True Grit and uh, the Top Forty remember. charts. Uh, where <laughs> Pitch she, Perfect too. Where, where she has it. Yes, where, uh, she also has a second career as a as a recording artist. But she is fantastic in this film as a as a kind of a misfit Daria esque high schooler whose life is thrown out of balance when her best friend, her lifelong best friend, uh, starts dating her seemingly has-it-all uh, jock brother played by Blake Jenner, who uh, you might know from Everybody Wants Some. It is a film in which blows up teen drama to to movie-sized and has a, has the right distance from its character and the right amount of empathy for its lead character, who is often pushes boundaries and, and, and gets on uh, people's nerves and, and, and crosses lines in ways that, that you uh, should not cross if you want to meet, be, stay friends with somebody. But it understands where she's coming from while also keeping a distance from it as well. Um, the tone of it's great. The dialogue's great. Uh, Steinfeld's great. There's a really wonderful relationship between her character and Woody Harrelson, who plays a teacher who is uh, exasperated by and also extremely fond of her. And uh, um, I think Craig's a, a, a really interesting new voice. She's written one film previously called uh, Postgrad, which was was not that great, but had some interesting eccentric touches. And, and uh, But uh, she really comes into her own with this one, who's produced by James L. Brooks, who I think kind of senses a, a kindred spirit. There's a lot of uh, mm. uh, similarities in their approaches. Well, if I couldn't be more looking forward to that movie. Oh, you'll, you'll <laughs> just made me more. Oh, yeah. I, everything I've heard about the movie is like, yep, 
but that's a movie for the me. The best part is the glitter troll. <laughs> <laughs> if only every movie had a glitter troll. Uh, how about how about you, Scott? I wanted to recommend a film called Tickled. <laughs> I, I finally caught up with this documentary, which had been getting a lot of press at Sundance and beyond for certain incidents uh, blowing up at Q&A sessions. Uh, the director is David Ferrier, who is a New Zealand television journalist, who came upon this bizarre, I guess what he thought, maybe lighter the side of the news phenomenon of extreme tickling competitions. <laughs> and he decided to contact the company, this company called Jane O'Brien Media, that was sponsoring the events and paying people quite a lot of money to participate. Uh, things get really weird from there. I mean, things are already kind of weird with the whole tickling competition thing, but things get really weird. He gets starts getting these hostile emails and lawsuit threats uh, intended to intimidate him into stopping his investigation, but he just keeps pushing through them. And what he winds up revealing is this just incredible, nefarious network that goes so far beyond you know this fetish. I, I can't really argue for the merits of Tickled as some brilliant piece of documentary filmmaking. It's not like I'm you know, thinking David Ferrier is going to be the next uh, Errol Morris, but it's just like one of those stranger-than-fiction phenomenons where he just latches on to this incredible story and just takes it for a ride uh, that really almost doesn't seem like it's like it's over yet. Uh, and it really, in our age of online harassment, especially, it really is uh, resonant and, and creepy and, and kind of uh, and super compelling. Edge of your seat stuff. Genevieve Kosky, what about you? Oh, sorry, I was still... I was still processing uh, <laughs> your recommendation Tickling for Tickling Tickled, which is a movie I've uh, I've heard about and kind of avoided because I have kind of a tickling phobia. But oh boy, uh, this will this will, uh, this will freak you out. This yeah, <laughs> I, I mean I've heard it's an incredibly freaky movie. I've yeah. got a uh, a screener at home and I'm looking forward to it. It's, and it's, now I'm looking it, forward to it even more, knowing it's going to wake Genevieve out. Yeah, it really will. But it's it's it, uh, in a good way. It's really something to watch. Well. I also want to recommend something that is really something to watch, but maybe not something to watch with anyone you're uncomfortable watching pretty explicit lesbian sex scenes with. Um, <laughs> that movie is The Handmaiden, uh, Park Chan-wook's new erotic thriller uh, con <laughs> movie. Which I, part of their description are you questioning? There, there, there's just a lot of different uh, adjectives I could place on this movie, mm -hmm. but I'm just going to go with entertaining. This was easily the most entertaining movie I've seen in quite a while, and... It's probably even more so if you don't know the source material, which I did, uh, which is the novel Fingersmith by Sarah Waters, which I believe, Tasha, you lent to me uh, a few years back. This is a twisty movie. There are like twists on top of twists in this. And if you don't know them, don't find them out before going in, because I saw this movie with people who did not know what was coming. And it was definitely one of those experiences where I'm just like watching them with my hands on my face. Like, <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to see what they do. And it, it was it was definitely rewarding for, for all involved. But yeah, I don't I don't really want to say a whole lot other than that it's it's very stylish. It's beautiful just to look at. And it's incredibly engrossing uh, narrative wise beautifully performed there is a lot of sex in it some of which verges on silly uh which <laughs> should, yep. pro should probably not be a surprise for people familiar with park channel but uh nonetheless highly recommend it uh so do i i this is one of the few movies this year that i just said the heck with it i'm just gonna go see it in the theater myself oh yeah even though i have to go see it alone and even though i'm paying for it even though i have a million movies at home to watch i have to see this right now and i was so glad i did 
I mean, I'm a huge Park Chan-wook fan to begin with. I was a huge fan of the book. I don't think I've been this curious about a source material mm. I loved filmmaker pairing, filmmaker that I love pairing since uh, Miyazaki made Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah, yeah I, I should mention that Fingersmith takes place in Victorian England mm-hmm. and Park Chan-wook's uh, adaptation takes place in Japanese-occupied Korea. So definitely uh, very interesting to see how the, the details shift. And yet a surprisingly accurate yeah. adaptation that the stuff that it cuts out is mostly just to make it not be an eight-hour movie. Yeah, yeah, in, in the the class stuff translates really well mm-hmm. with the whole uh, Japanese occupation of Korea at the time. So. Is, it, is it his best film? Do you think? Maybe it may be. Right? I have old such a really love good. for Old Boy. Yeah. I like Old Boy is one of my all time favorite that, films. But this is pretty impeccable. I think I it might be him, his. Yes, I'm with you too. This is a very good movie. Yeah. <laughs> I think it might be his most accomplished, technically accomplished film. Ooh, that's that's there that's there, there were too. there were a couple like shots that just took my breath away. The yeah. camera does not rest in this movie. No. Either. I need to go see it in the theater. I saw it on a, on a screener, oh. uh, which is mm-hmm. yeah, I know. yeah. It's been playing for a long time. It's, it's a real hit. It's a, a genuine yeah. hit. Isn't it a nice? One? It's almost like, like your 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 moonlights and your uh, handmaidens are hits. People were hungry for good movies after a year that was a little short on them, or at least a little space them out a little. Yeah, it's much. almost like people keep hearing that it's full of very graphic, uh, hyper extended. <laughs> it's hot stuff. Set. I'll just say it. It's hot stuff. <laughs> If the recommendation hot stuff, of people, hot stuff to buy us. Those are endorsements of people that followed film for a living and, and knew what they were talking about. Yeah. Uh, got people might, might be, I know, I know. Yep, hubba hubba. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I hope that's on the poster somewhere. If it's not, I'm going to get a sharpie and add it. And that's it for this week's edition of the Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out November 29th, December 1st. Keith, what do we have lined up? We'll be looking at a pair of movies about first contact, the difficulties of talking to aliens, and the problems we humans have talking to each other here on Earth. Robert Zemeckis' 1997 film Contact, an adaptation of astronomer Carl Sagan's novel, and the current release, Arrival, a Denis Villeneuve-directed adaptation of a Ted Shang novella. The two movies both center on female scientists with strong emotional and moral beliefs that affect the way they reach out when aliens come calling. They both zoom in on the conflict between scientific curiosity and governmental paranoia, and they both hold tight to the mystery of what the aliens want. There's been a lot of open comparison between these movies ever since Arrival started turning up at film festivals, and it's really warranted. We're looking forward to discussing them both in relation to each other. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of In the Mood for Love and Moonlight, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha Robinson. Uh, you can find me writing about film and interviewing the makers of Moonlight over at TheVerge.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can find me at uprocks.com and on Twitter at kphips3000. You can find me at the culture section at vox.com and on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. And I'm on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. And you can find my work in such publications as uh, New York Times, uh, Washington Post, Variety. Uh, I'm here that for New Republic sometimes, you know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Google him. Yeah, I Google me. I, I'm right, I write for a lot of, or follow me again at. <laughs> Scott underscore Tobias. 
You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show via Twitter at Next Picture Pod, via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Hello, stranger. It seems so good to see you back again. How long has it been? Seems like a mighty